Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. This compelling quote from Holly Gordon sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've come to know and work with some pretty incredible people. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you for supporting me in this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it? Maybe forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening. If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. Our relationships have a profound influence on us. When we talk about leadership, relationships we cultivate at work certainly matter. But what about our relationships behind the scenes? The relationships and conversations our coworkers, our boss, and our direct reports are not exposed to. Pre-pandemic, we were able to keep our professional and personal worlds much more separated. But with working from home and Zoom calls being the norm, We've literally peeked behind the curtain of our colleagues' personal lives in ways we never have before. Our personal relationships have a big impact on how we lead, how we think, and how we approach our work. I know from my own experience that my relationship with Sashil, my husband, really impacts the way I think about and approach my work and how I think about the world. We don't always agree, and yet that's the whole point. It's wonderful to have a supportive partner, but I can always count on Sushil to disagree and challenge me in ways I don't always appreciate in the moment. Knowing that our personal relationships are so important in the way they shape who we are and how we think and how we approach our work, I wanted to explore a relationship like that on my show. I am truly honored to have this opportunity to put a spotlight on a relationship where both partners have been deeply influenced by the relationship, personally, of course, but also professionally. In fact, instead of reading books on marriage, they read and discuss business and leadership books to understand their marriage. I love that. Today, I am thrilled and honored to have two people, Peter and Holly Gordon, who are generous enough to share with us a taste of their relationship. Now, you might recognize their names because if you have listened to the last two episodes of this season, I had the opportunity to talk with Peter and Holly to explore each of their own leadership journeys. In case you didn't listen to those episodes, feel free to listen now or later, but this conversation stands on its own. We think totally differently, and we often have to say to each other, probably yesterday morning, I said, babe, look, I hear what you're saying. I'm just approaching it differently. So let's find value in that difference, right? And so it's that sort of negotiation, that sort of constant coming back to the well. They can't emphasize the language enough because if you don't have the words, it's so hard to find common meaning with each other. I see it in things like, I sit on a diversity and inclusion board. I wanna use words that have good intent, but I need to make sure I'm using words that are not offending other people because they have different connotations to them. And I think that's just important for all of us. We keep in conversation and we keep in dialogue and we keep turning towards learning and we keep turning towards discovery and towards understanding and holding tightly to this idea that the shared journey is where the richness lies. Peter and Holly, 
Thank you so much for being on my show together. I am really looking forward to speaking with both of you. And as we were talking about earlier, I think that this is a unique and exciting opportunity to talk to you know a couple where you guys treasure your relationship in a way that goes beyond sort of the supportive spouse, where you really help each other and challenge each other. I bet sometimes you disagree, maybe not just sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that really has made a difference in your career and in the way in which you manage your relationships in your professional life. So I just want to explore that. So thank you for being here today. What a thank pleasure. You. Thanks for having us. Agreed. Tell us a little bit about how you met, what drew you to each other besides your good looks. <laughs> Those will be two completely different stories if we each tell our own version. <laughs> okay. We met at a party in New York City around the holidays, and there was nothing particularly eventful about our meeting, except that his friend asked me out to dinner, not Pete. And then when I went out to dinner with the friend and he said, we might be going to meet up with Pete later. I had what should have been an early warning sign. I had a feeling like, oh, good. That's actually who I really want to see. So we saw him that night and then Pete invited me to a party subsequently that he was having a Scottish Burns night party. And again, I barely knew him. And he stood up and he gave a toast to the, what is it? To the lassies. To the lassies. And as he was giving this toast, I had no business having a sort of emotional nervous response, almost like a mother or like a girlfriend, because I hardly knew him. But I had a full body emotional nervous response on his behalf. I think my palms even started sweating. That's so funny. Yeah. So I guess that was a hint that there was some kind of change in destiny about to happen. That was January. We didn't actually start dating until May. I will save you the intermediary story because we don't have time on this podcast. It's a great one. And I'm thinking maybe I'll write it one day. But for the most part, what I found immediately interesting about Pete or attractive about him was he was really funny. He is pretty good looking, I must say. (laughs) And we had a lot of sort of shared background. He felt very comfortable and I barely knew him. So I guess that feeling of like my sweaty palms for someone I know really well, I felt as though I knew him really well before I really knew him. So getting to know him was really fun and he made me laugh. That's great. Thank you, Holly. I think we met in 1994 and we started dating in 95. So it's 26 years. So, and we've lived together since 1995. So it's a long time. And so sometimes you don't get credit for the time you've served in a relationship. But if I go back and I think at the time where I was in my life, I mean, I was definitely physically attracted to Holly, which was the soup du jour for me with girls at that stage. I was much more interested in the physical aspects of it. I'd had a few girlfriends, but there was sort of fleetingness about them. I moved in with her after three months. And I think I was always comfortable being in a relationship because I come from a close family and a lot of women around me. So it wasn't like having a male female relationship at that age was tricky for me. I remember my cousin who I'm very close with coming over from Scotland after about month one of our relationship, which went intense quite quickly because we moved in together after three months and saying to him, oh my goodness, I think I might lose her, not my normal thing, like I might get rid of them, right? And so I was clearly worried that I was hitting above my station and I had to sort of hang on with arms, legs, limbs, and all the other digits, (laughs) the grippy devices that come with it. And what was funny about that is that that message, we didn't have viral back then, but it basically went viral on the old telephone system back to England and Scotland, where my family's from. 
quickly followed by a series of phone calls from other family members saying, oh, I hear you've met someone really special. Anyway, so that was how I remember the beginning of our relationship was just it was quick and whirlwindish. And we were pretty much into a relationship very, very quickly and relative to what I had been used to before. One is physiological. One was sort of just the intensity and the emotion of it. Yeah, that's right. Was the holding on in response to your cousin? Was your cousin a threat? My response to holding on was, I wasn't quite sure why she was interested in me. Oh, okay. Got it. And I thought she was just an unbelievable girl. And, you know, I was like, oh my goodness, there's no way she hangs around with a buffoon like me and recognizing my own fallibility. And so I just really like her, but I've always been in control of these situations. And now I feel a little bit out of control of the situation. Very good. Which may be a precursor to your whole thing, which is the partnership of life, right? Yeah. Finding your partner an equal. Yeah, exactly. And just as you've described, I mean, these things usually are a lot of luck and a lot of who you happen to like meet or be near at the time, which I'm sure is frustrating for those of us who haven't found a life partner that we're happy with for whatever reason. It's funny to hear Pete saying, I really felt like I needed to hold on to her because at that period of time, professionally, we both had jobs that demanded a lot of independence from each other. Very soon after I met him, I got the job at the overnight on Good Morning America. And so I went to work at 6 p.m. and I would come home if I was lucky at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m., but more often I'd come home at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. Wow. So even though we'd moved in together, we were never really in the apartment at the same time, except on Saturday and Sunday when I was in like a weird overnight scrambled headspace. And at the same time, Pete was working for a construction company and he was flying all over the country to different jobs during the week. And so we were basically eking out the time that we could spend together. It was incredibly important that we were able to communicate effectively because we were mostly on the phone. We had all sorts of codes that we'd send each other to each other's pagers using numbers to correspond with that's also romantic with the letters on a telephone keyboard. For those of your listeners who are like under 30, that might need a whole Google search to figure out what that means. So we would send each other pages. We would talk to each other whenever we could, given our completely upside down schedules. It meant that there was always deep trust between us very strong communication, and a lot of independence while being interdependent. I love that combination of interdependence and independence. And it sounds like there was already some nuggets of those conversations because you weren't together very often. You were making the most of those conversations. Were there some conversations already early on about your work and how you were approaching your work or anything like that? Yeah, lots of conversations. I think what we realized although we would never put the words to it because we've learned a whole new language. I think the catalyst I would say is having a dog because it's given us hours together of walking early in the morning, wherever we've lived, right? In the last six years, I honestly think that is part of the physiological catalyst that has created the understanding plus the work that you've done in your business whole and the work I've done with you really in terms of understanding and learning language. But I think back then there was an appreciation implicit without being explicit that each other had a different skill and that we brought something different to the table, both of which we appreciated in each other. Again, we never would have said this up until probably 15 years ago, maybe at the earliest. But I think that was sort of what drew us together was in the same way that when you're building a team, you try not to create disassociated circles, if you think about the organizational structure in terms of circles, and you try not to 
create concentric or heavily overlapping circles. You try to create what we know as Venn diagrams, which is partially overlapping circles so that you don't have a break in your organization or a hole in your organization, but you also don't have so much redundancy that people feel demotivated within your organization. And I think that's the benefit of having, we're now just talking like a very simple Venn diagram of two people, but we're talking about if we'd both been good at the same thing. I mean, we, we were commenting the other day about actors you know, being married to each other, they're just destined for failure as a marriage because they're both doing the same thing. And it's an incredibly introspective world. They kind of need to have a successful marriage, probably someone who can fan that and understand it and stand by it and talk them off the ledge and all those things. When you've got two people who are in that role, oh my goodness, right? You can only imagine the complexity of the conversations of whose needs are greater. And I think that having different skill sets and looking at the world differently, I think it has helped us in our marriage. And I think it's helped us recognize that each brings a different skill to the table and appreciate each other. I think the earliest comment that we made identifying this was where one of us came back. I think it was me, but I, I, not that I'm taking credit about it. But when I came back, I was like, Holly, you are like the sniper in the tower because she was not dealing with something in of sort of execution orientation extremely well, I felt, probably derogatorily. And I was like, you're 30,000 feet away. You're in the tower with your scope and your rifle and you're picking it off. Meanwhile, I've got my knives out and I'm fighting for my life <laughs> on the front line, right? And that sort of actually began to, as a visual, even though she didn't like it because it had a military visual to it or a combative <laughs> yeah, visual right. to it, it was helpful for us to understand what we both do well because I do better with a lot of balls in the air and unknowns ahead of me and she does better with knowing what's going to happen ahead of her. Yeah. So that's a metaphor that you have come back to uh, in terms of understanding how you think and how you approach things. Yes. And I would say that it all sounds like this has been honky-dory from the beginning, but it is only in reflection and discovery that you start to understand that the gifts that your partner has, as opposed to having them just feel like a giant pain in the butt. Because if you haven't figured out that you have different skills, right? If you haven't figured out that actually, let me just do the long range planning, I'll do all the planning, but then you actually are going to be on the hook for actually executing the thing. It's like, why won't you sit down and plan with this with me? What is wrong with you? Or from Pete's perspective, no, I want to do it this way. I don't care how you planned it. It's now. It's now we're going to do it a little bit differently, right? And so it is in through the understanding that different people bring different strengths and respecting those strengths and seeing the value in them that you avoid conflict. Otherwise, you're going to be in conflict. We're not a perfect married couple by any stretch of the imagination. And there's been conflict along the way. One thing that Pete's always done is support my career. And I've obviously always supported his career, but it doesn't always go both ways. One source of friction consistently is at what level of ambition are each of us at different times? That's another thing that we've navigated because we both had quite intense jobs. And so figuring out how those things ebb and flow has meant lots of sort of negotiation and compromise. This whole idea of the differences that you see in each other and being able to label them, like talk about them from a distance so that you have a common language in the way that you're talking about it, rather than you're just doing something to drive me nuts on purpose, <laughs> rather than just realizing like, this is just a preference. I like to be here. You like to be there. So how can we do that, the Venn diagram really well together and take a step back from that? Yeah. And by the way, I think the frustrating thing, your catchphrase of, are you just doing that to make me mad? 
part of what makes one mad is not being able to name that. It might still make you mad post-fact, but the fact you can name it yes. is like 90% of the it's way the there. It's the beginning of the defanging Not just the beginning. It. It's, I think it's almost the entire thing because you can then turn it into like, oh, that's hilarious. That's just Holly. That's right. And, and as, opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to somehow it's impinging on my desires and she's not doing her conjugal duty or blah, 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 blah. Or what, is that the wrong word? Yes. Oh, sorry. She's not doing, I, I didn't, didn't mean to. She's not doing her marital duty. I know what you mean. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Am I on the wrong podcast here? (laughs) (laughs) I know it could easily veer that direction, right? (laughs) We have a really good example of that, actually, is that when we had young kids, and again, these are all things that could be applied to your team. They could be applied to any relationship. So when we had young kids, we lived in Manhattan and we would drive down to see my dad in Washington. And inevitably, we'd be driving back into the city on a Sunday night at like 8 p.m. with tired kids. And by the time we got to our apartment, unloading our stuff into our four flight walk up, we would be in a fight. We would be in a fight that was such a big fight that we would be not talking, carrying the bits and bobs, ignoring each other on the stairs. Anyone who's been married can understand what that fight looks like. And what we realized was that, oh, it always happens right around the Lincoln Tunnel. That was the timing of the journey. Like as we were going into the Lincoln Tunnel, That's when the spark would happen. And by the time we got uptown, we were in a full fledged. But once we could say, oh, let's not have the Lincoln Tunnel fight tonight, okay? (laughs) Oh, I think it sounds like we might be having a Lincoln Tunnel fight. Then we could just name it and be done with it and just not participate in that conversation. Yeah, that's right. You could get that distance from it and say, and make a choice. Make a choice. Are we going to (laughs) fight or are we going to laugh? One of the themes that I feel like is coming up is time and timing, right? So you talked about the dog and the walks. And I know especially you guys were taking a lot of walks during COVID and just carving out that time to be together, which sounds cliche and cheesy, but like you can't really have a relationship unless you're actually spending time with that person. And given what you were talking about also in terms of you both having ambitious and busy careers, that's not easy to do, but then also balancing that at different times And then knowing when the timing is, when things might go wrong, based on the patterns you've seen in your relationships, those are really important. Yeah, I think Anne-Marie Slaughter, when she wrote Unfinished Business, talked about seasons, seasons of a career. And the other thing that Pete and I really agreed upon early on is the kind of parents we wanted to be. Even though we're both quite ambitious professionally, we just like working. We like being engaged in our productivity, I would say, both of us, and learning and being challenged. But we really wanted to have children for whom we were around and present. And it's like the Gen Xers dream. Oh, two incomes and happy, well-adjusted kids and all that sort of thing. But that is not easy. And it does take sacrifice and compromise. And man, is it tiring. And so understanding that life has seasons, including the season of being really annoyed with your partner because you're both dog tired is one of the things that I'm always telling young people as they are starting that time of life where their careers are growing and their families are growing at the same time. We're getting better. I think COVID's made people talk about this more, but extractive business practices are not conducive to the kind of sanity, let's say, or pace of life that's really doable for human beings. That was part of the fight, which is that Mostly it was my career during those early stages, but something had to give. 
to be the kind of parents we wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that you had agreement on the kind of parent you wanted to be makes a huge difference because there can be differing parenting styles, but until you've talked about it and realize, okay, are we on the same page? What does that actually look like day to day or mean for us in terms of how we make compromises that can really get in the way? 100%. It's like design principles, right? You just make design principles around your values. And from the beginning, from my sweaty palm moment and the conversations after that, I was like, oh, this guy really shares both my background and my values. And so we started from a very strong foundation to have consistent values-based conversations. So it was more about problem solving against values, against sort of set of design principles than it was a disagreement about the fundamentals. Yeah, because if you have that foundation, then you can go off and have those challenges and disagreements and hard conversations because you've got that foundation. That's easier to do. That's right. Yeah. So the premise is that you guys do have some really great conversations, which I do want to get to. But how do you cultivate that in a relationship? Like, how do you get to that point? And I know we've already kind of maybe touched on some of those things, like shared values, naming some of the things that we prefer or that bother us or whatever, and then having some distance and being able to talk about it. But what else gets you to the point of feeling like you have a partner that you can really talk to about things that are beyond sort of the day-to-day normal things that a couple might talk about? I think part of it is Holly's initial comment about when you have an independent life, the interdependence becomes more fun. Because you're actually both bringing new information in. And I remember my mother saying it to me as a child. It wasn't something significant. She just made it as an off-the-cuff remark. But I remember it feeling significant to me or it, it lodging a place in my brain. I thought about it, which is your father has his friends with whom he does things. But there's a limit to that. He doesn't go out all the time and do things. He relies on me for the social life. And they had a more traditional marriage because of the era in which they were brought up to. And it, it was the observation that he does do things on his own, but He's also very dependent on her. And I think we have always used words, the two of us, and maybe we use them initially as defensive words for both of us, because when you go through tough times in a marriage, which everyone does clearly, and you go through, you're like, oh my goodness, you know, there's just so much friction here. It's not that you want to give up on it. It's just you use in your arguments and your rationalization to both yourself and your partner, like, well, I'm very independent. You know, I could leave you. I'll be okay. It's not a bad touchstone to remember that we're independent. The derivative impact of that is that you bring interesting things back to the nest. For us, having both being working, being in different industries that weren't competing, I think there's luck involved in this. And I think then once we had found the fact that we do like each other and we do like spending time with each other, The conversational part, Winnie, that you refer to, the actual process of that has not been easy. Honestly, it's taken an awful lot of work and it's taken an awful lot of feeling bad about things after a conversation and coming back to it and and revisiting it and saying, why did we do that to each other? What do we mean by that? And the confidence and again, the language, I can't emphasize the language enough because you don't have the words. It's so hard to find common meaning with each other. I see it in things like I sit on a diversity and inclusion board. I want to use words that have good intent, but I need to make sure I'm using words that are not offending other people because they have different connotations to them. And I think that's just important for all of us. And you can't get there because these languages are nuanced and they're sort of modern and they're changing so quickly that you have to work at them. And in fact, Harley's in my language now is our language. It's obviously inputted 
and inspired and influenced by a lot of different inputs and people, but it is one that we have found the groove to do and talk about as we go through these difficult conversations. And I think that I leverage and I use in my work environment too. And I try to find a language with each of the key people that I need to have language with because each of them is different too. That's right. And I think what I heard you say too is trying to reconcile intent with language. So making sure that your intended intent (laughs) is getting conveyed through the language that people can hear that intent. But I love the connection between how you've been able to figure that out with Holly and how you intentionally think about that in terms of the people that you work with and doing that. That's great. I would build just a couple of points. One, I would say that Pete is right about how many painful cycles we've been through that are normal again to any relationship, whether it's you have a teenager, you have a spouse, or you have anyone or a parent that you have are very close to and therefore are at your rawest. And that moment when you've said raw things to each other and you're so mad you can't speak. Yep. Having that deep sense that that's not what you want and having the courage to reflect on the conversation and be open to, in some ways, a conversational analysis, whether it's overt or introspective, is the work of finding your way. Because we're human and we've been alive for millennia, there do happen to be an enormous number of books that can help navigate relationships. And because a lot of the work that I do is around behavioral science, I read a lot of books about leadership, about team building, about blah, blah, blah. And Pete likes the cliff notes, which is part of our deal, right? Yeah. It's awesome because the fact of the matter is that he is so open and curious to the cliff notes. We're in learning mode together and we're applying those learnings together on our own marriage. We're literally unpacking the dynamics of our life together And sometimes I say, okay, this one you have to read, like crucial conversation, which was a game changer for our relationship because it's all about the ways conversations go wrong. And there should be as many guidebooks for marriage as business books, but I don't read guidebooks for marriage. I read business books. The other thing that I've been looking at a lot is how men and women are different. And it turns out that men and women need different things to feel safe. And this is a recent epiphany. And so when you say, how do you get to that place in a marriage where you have these kinds of conversations. Well, number one, you have to feel safe. You have to feel safe in your marriage. And one thing that I will say about Pete that has made me feel safe from the moment I met him is he is deeply loyal, Hmm. deeply loyal and committed. And that comes from his family. And so that immediately is a place of safety. So loyalty is really important. But the other things, men apparently really need respect and trust to feel safe. They need to feel respected and they need to feel trusted. And women, these are mass generalizations, generalizations. women Mm -hmm. need attention and interest. And interest is a kind of attention. But I would say human beings need to feel respected, need to feel trusted need to feel attended to, and need to feel that the other person is interesting because attention and interest creates connection. And that's how women generally over time have survived is by creating connections. If I had to say what a recipe is, start with loyalty, which is what you agree to. It's just like signing a business contract. I will be loyal to this company. And then practice respect, trust, attention, and interest in your relationships. And you will achieve over time a kind of understanding. Yeah. I love that. I think what you've talked about is so practical (laughs) and I think anyone can hold on to that. And I think it can be applied 
both personally and I think it can be applied professionally. The way in which you have hashed things out throughout your marriage and figured things out, you were coming from a place of safety, even if you were angry at each other in, in the moment, right? There was a baseline of safety and values, I think, that was helping you get there. And I think that that's true for the workplace, feeling like we can disagree, we can have some of those crucial conversations that get us to a better place or get us to having a better conversation about what's really happening. There has to be that safety. Yeah. You've raised something about safety in the workplace and the fact it's got something going in my head, which is about this idea of lack of safety in the workplace. This is where with the amount that we work, the overlap between work and home life, mm. they build on one another, right? And they can build on one another in a great way and they can build on one another in a destructive way. You and I have worked on this together in our sessions of leadership about how to create safety in the workplace and draw out of people because it gets to better decisions, right? And yes. when people are freed of feeling fearful, then they come up with their best ideas. But one of the things that has surprised me is I think we as a group have been successful in creating that. Certainly, we talk about it a lot, and hopefully talking about it leads to it becoming one of our inalienable truths, right, of a community. But some people, it opens them up like a flower, and they just start feeding in, right, in a great way. And other people actually almost go backwards in age, in naivety. And I wonder whether there's a component of their home life that they haven't had that kind of autonomy and that kind of freedom of thought, and they're actually not sure what to do with it. And it's really interesting. And so when we talk about, I'm skeptical about these hacks like toxic workplace. I was actually almost picked as a juror and I just couldn't bear the idea that I was going to have to listen to a case about toxic workplace because it's thrown out there as a sort of meme almost. As a blanket statement. As a blanket statement. And, it's and lazy I, is what you don't like about it. It's lazy. And I think actually it's probably as much incumbent on the person using that phrase as it is on reflective of the workplace that they are describing. because. Again, if you go back to my example of the person that isn't used to that psychological safety in their home life, then gets a workplace that can be challenging and they can all be challenging at different times, then they may look at the workplace and attribute toxicity to it, especially if they've heard that word given to them by someone else and say, oh, this is a toxic workplace. When in fact, it's not. It's just their interpretation of that workplace is challenged because they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the comparison point, they have all those things that someone else might look at it and go, no, it has some flaws that we can correct, but it's not toxic. Right. Or what does toxic mean? I think what you're saying too is like they're hiding behind a word rather than working at unraveling or untangling. Rather than recognizing that, especially in a small group, you're contributing, then you might be part of the workplace. Yeah. And reflecting on what's making them miserable. Pete just came home yesterday with, he just watched a TED Talk it's like the advice trap. The advice monster. It's on Seattle TEDx or something, but it's called How to Tame Your Advice Monster. The moral of the story is that when someone's complaining, and this goes back to toxic workplace, the question to ask is, okay, so what's bothering you? And what else? And what else? And what else? That any of these sort of human dynamics, there are many, many facets that are playing in, and that it's in untangling those facets and reflecting on your own contribution that you really can identify the areas of growth. And I was just going to make a quick point that both of us at one time or other had a job that made us miserable. And the usefulness of our walks and our talks in those conditions has been extraordinary. And I say that because it goes back to this idea of a toxic workplace, which is that you have to disentangle 
are there dynamics within the system of your workplace that are tricky? Is it dynamic with one or two individuals that are tricky? Is it a lack of shared values? Therefore, you're like the wrong widget for that system because the values of the system are not in. But having somebody to talk to every day and unpack that and also gets to the point where both of us on different occasions, we've been like, you know what? This job is not just making you miserable. It's making me miserable. So now we need to figure out like what's strategy for moving beyond this, this conversation. That's right. Yeah. Because it's a lot of work, right? And that's why people either just stay out of exhaustion or just quit and haven't really figured out why they quit or what they should be doing differently. (laughs) Exactly. Winnie. Why are you quitting? Because if you don't figure that out, you carry that baggage to the next place. That's right. Peter, when you were talking about this whole idea of safety, you don't know what baggage people are bringing. And so you only know that by the way in which they react to conflict at work or trying to figure out how to make it a safe place and what safety looks like to different people. And so you're having to guess in the dark a little bit, but yet you have to figure that out in order to make it safe. It's good to remember. And Holly cued me up for this one. When someone comes to me, I have this thing now, which is if with certain people, if you're coming to have a conversation, label the conversation before we have it. Is this a vent session? Is it a decision-making session where I know I've got to be ready to make a decision? Is it a brainstorming, creative decision, or whatever it is? And if it's a vent session, then I think often is helpful to people when they're venting against another person for a certain type of behavior is to say to them, before you go down that path of the negative thought, which I understand why you're there, but do you think that person meant to do what you are claiming they did? If that was their intent, then I think you have a completely valid argument in your head as to why they're doing it. But if you think for a minute they don't have that intent, and there's a high possibility, probability that they don't, then maybe you should just rethink the complaint and actually think about how you can change your approach to that conversation. Because there's a lot invisible in everyone's conversations that you see the tip of the iceberg. The other thing that I think we have realized a lot in our discussions is the difference between words and action. And I came from a family which was, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I heard my parents say, I love you. But there was never any question in my mind that they loved me. And I think that has carried my way of being into life, which is that actions, the words are important. I don't diminish the value of words because they're the sort of opening gambit to whatever happens. But obviously there's an expression, you walk the walk or talk the talk, right? I mean, words set the stage and actions define it. And you're defined by your actions, not by your words. And I think that is something that's good for all of us to remember because we can float words out there a lot. But at the end of the day, it's how we consistently behave that defines who we are. Yeah. And that consistency is important, Do you guys think of leadership in the way in which you approach yourselves as leaders? Do you see it differently? Has that ever come up as differences in terms of how you think about leadership or think about yourselves as leaders? Yes, I think so. I think it really links to what Pete just said about words and actions. I read a lot of words about leadership and sometimes... Pete has actually said to me, like, Holly, those are all words. Those are all, what are you actually doing? Through my work with Girl Rising, I got a lot of awards for leadership. And it always kind of bugged him. And it didn't bug him because he wasn't proud of me. It bugged him because he didn't like this idea that someone would be celebrated for leadership 
because I think he feels as though I'm speaking on your behalf, but yeah, yeah. but he feels as though it's so fundamental. It's your job and obligation to show up and behave in a particular way. And that awarding, and I agree with him completely on this, that awarding one person and like crowning them as a leader is diminishing diminishing to the rest of the crowd. And you can't be a leadership is everyone's responsibility and you may have the job of the most responsibility for the group but when you over coronate or you over rotate on celebrating a particular aspect or individual it's like toxic workplace for Pete it's like a shorthand that's messy and is not specific enough and that is expressed in actions so I think about myself in terms of leadership around the qualities of leadership the history of what leaders are. I learned a lot about the presidents. I think great leadership is almost always in service of, I think of myself as I'd like to be a servant leader, kind of takes the pressure off actually. You don't always have to be right, for example, right? Lifting other people is the job of the work. I have a very academic and intellectual approach to leadership and Pete's is much more visceral and instinctual, if that makes sense. Yeah, it goes back to the sniper and the knife fight. 100%. I'm all about leadership structures, leadership frameworks, leadership formats. And Pete's like, all right, so what are you actually going to do? What are you doing? (laughs) Let's get to work. (laughs) That's where we're an amazing yin and yang. We literally have fights where we're agreeing, but he's starting from one place and I'm starting from another and we have to find our way together. Which is kind of cool because I can see those conversations where Peter is seeing how what he's doing fits into a framework you've mentioned, which validates or helps him think about what he's doing. What he's doing helps you think about like, okay, he's challenging you to think about how to apply (laughs) what you've been reading, how to apply it. I'm so often impressed by his natural humanity because actually a lot of leadership is how you're a human with somebody else and how you bring the best out of them. And Pete has a natural humanity, a natural transparency, a natural caring in the way he shows up, he's very present in every conversation. You know this, he always wants his Zoom, his FaceTime on, whereas I'm happy to be on the phone. He's really in his leadership. And I would actually say that I'm much more reflecting on the leadership, if that makes sense. I think the point is that there's more than one type of leadership, right? Is what we're saying. And there's a spectrum. I always thought it was funny that psychologists would name themselves after certain philosophers or psychologists and identify with that strain of psychology. Because if there's one thing that is so obvious to me in life, it's that not one thesis, not one philosophy, not one way of thinking, not one type of leadership works in isolation. You have to adapt all the time and you have to adapt your circumstances to where it is. And I think the spectrum that Holly is referencing is one of which is more the matriarchal patrician type of leadership from an academic intellectual standpoint, which is offering vision and guidance and direction to the other end of the spectrum, which is offering compassion and is in the journey with you Mm. leading. Look, it's important for anyone who's leading, I think, to recognize that spectrum and to exercise to the best of their abilities their own pendulum swing between what is necessary at any given point in time. And some just perform at a much better level at one end of the spectrum than they do at the other. But you need both. Yeah. You know, at some point you're going to get picked off by the sniper, going back to my sniper example. And you can't <laughs> use the sniper rifle all the time because if someone gets up into your blind with you, they've got a knife and you've got a, an unwieldy weapon and you're dead. That's right. Sorry about the morbidity of my, the analogy. <laughs> the of my example. But I think you need both. And I think if you're deficient in one, 
which I would say I am probably less naturally inclined to go super long range and academic and framework oriented. But I know that I need someone next to me at work who thinks that way. And I need someone in life that way. And I don't need someone as much at work or in life who can deal with the higher energy, the we can pivot, we can make this work, life's a journey, I'm in it with you kind of way, because that's my natural cadence. I think it's important going back to the business aspects so we can take the focus off our marriage (laughs) is I think finding that complement of skills and not being afraid that one is trumping another. Yes. Yeah. And I think Winnie, you and I have talked about this at different points in time. It's bringing, I think, all of this together, which is when you approach that conversation, you need to think about that conversation as what are the levels in this conversation? Am I looking for a one-up here mm. in having the conversation? Am I sort of trumping someone or are they trumping me and how do I feel that? Or are we on an equal footing? And, and what I posit to the group that I work with and the people that ultimately I manage is there are times when you are leading me. I need you to lead me. Why? Because you have more information than I do. And there are times when I am leading you because I have more information than you. And we both need to recognize that as an important trait, which means you need to earn my respect. So I will follow you and I need to earn your respect every day so that you will follow me in a way that is a trusting and that I've got your best interests at my heart. For me, that was a a shift in the way leadership gets discussed. For me, it was always hierarchical. And I have come to realize that it is better and more productive in a less hierarchical. I also think it's more relevant today Mm-hmm. than it has been in the past, that it's less about structure and it's more about how you deliver those conversations and respect one another. Again, it's not static though, right? I work in an organization of professionals, so I'm not managing a naturally tiered corporation all the way down. I think if you went back to an army model, which obviously posits a very different model, you've got life at stake and I wouldn't ordain to try and say that they've got the wrong model, or the right model. I would suspect that their model is good it's worked for years and it needs to be hierarchical and it needs to be information-based and delivered and you take it and you move on and you don't question it otherwise many people can be hurt as a result of that yeah yeah one thing i want to come back to which i think is a really good theme is this whole idea of what am i naturally good at versus i'm not necessarily naturally good at and then what do i do with that some of what i do with that is i learn so i can get better and pivot and be more flexible and all that. Some of it I just give to somebody else to do, to come alongside me and do it with me, because then they can take that role, I can take this other role. But I think that's that whole notion of having a good awareness of what I'm naturally good at, and being humble that I'm not good at everything, and that this other person should come along. But also sometimes I need to do it myself, and understanding the difference, having the wisdom to understand the difference. And I think you talked about that both in your marriage, as well as professionally and work you do with other people. Yeah, I think that's right. It's part of the reflection. I've talked to a lot of and worked with a lot of co-CEOs and co-founders. Actually, usually they're co-founders and they're co-CEOs. And they usually have talked about their relationship as being like a marriage. Do you have any advice for people who are maybe about to engage in sort of that kind of a relationship in a co-CEO, co-founder relationship? based on what you've learned in your relationship, what they might need to consider and think about? Definitely. I think being a co-CEO or co-founder is a lot like a marriage. A lot of what we've discussed are exercises that I would always recommend that the two do, which is really thinking hard and codifying values separately and then together. 
scenario planning around what success looks like separately and together, doing any kind of exercises that require you to really reflect deeply around what you both imagine to be true and what you want to be true, because that's where you can find what begins as like a hair of a difference and becomes the Grand Canyon over time, right? Yes. I also think that the idea of consistent mediation is not one that's used enough when it comes to co-leading in power, because any kind of co-leadership role demands all of these very nuanced things that we've been talking about, trust, respect, loyalty, feeling valued, feeling appreciated, all the kinds of things that really depend on your perspective. And so when you only have one perspective, which is your own, it's really helpful to have a third person so that the two people with their two perspectives can come to a third person over time consistently and check in and work through the challenges. Just like with a marriage, we have the same shared goal, which is the health of our company. Therefore, every quarter or every six months, we actually have to come together and surface the things that are causing discomfort And then the thing that I've found, we've talked about it a bit today, which is like a slowing down and figuring out, Pete was talking about like, what conversation are we having? Are we having a one-upman conversation? Are we having a brainstorming, blah, blah, blah. The other kinds of things that I think are super important is that when you're in a conversation and you're feeling triggered, when you're feeling hot, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling a sense of like, why is this person doing the thing that they're doing? To stop and say, what are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? And I've actually started saying that aloud in my conversations at work, where I say to yourself, no, to my colleagues, hey guys, I'm having a reaction to this conversation. And here's why I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid that this might happen. I'm afraid that I will be not have a seat at the table. I'm afraid that you are going to go in a direction that is going to put us at risk. I'm afraid. So usually whatever is making us the most agitated is because we have some kind of fear around it. We're in survival mode, right? Fight or flight mode is about survival. What is the thing? And when you say, and what else, and what else, and what else to that question of yourself, you start to become able to let it go because it's usually can be worked out. It usually can be identified. And so again, in a co-founder, co-CEO relationship, sometimes it's, I'm afraid my co-founder is going to get more credit than me. I'm afraid that because of the way they think, the way I think is going to be discounted. I mean, that's certainly between Pete and me. We think totally differently. And we often have to say to each other, probably yesterday morning, I said, babe, look, I hear what you're saying. I'm just approaching it differently. So let's find value in that difference, right? And so it's that sort of negotiation that sort of constant coming back to the well, which is easier. I often wish that there was a third person on our walk. (laughs) Maybe our dog doesn't actually do a good job of mediation. (laughs) Now we're at a really good moment where if we get really heated, we just say, oh, you know what? Let's leave it. Yeah, it's okay. We're just not going to continue this conversation. I'm like usually like a little stick. I just keep going pokey, 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 pokey. We're much better now. If it's going down the wrong way, we're just like, oh, all right, we'll have to revisit it. Yeah. And then we'll both think about it and we'll come back to it maybe with a different perspective. Yeah. What you're talking about is the essence of emotional intelligence, which is being aware that you're having a reaction, (laughs) first of all, and you're not just reacting. Something's happening here. And before I react, I'm going to acknowledge it. And then- You have to have some humility to say that I am reacting and then talk about what you are afraid of. That takes a lot of humility and a lot of 
it's risky. I feel like that's risky. I think that it also helps everyone else maybe feel like they can be risky in that conversation and be honest. Well, I literally was thinking about this, about leadership principles yesterday in the new way of the world. How are things changing? And I actually wrote down from hubris to humility because I think old models of leadership are actually all about hubris. I know I'm smart. I own I'm powerful. And new leadership models that are rooted in humility are I actually believe long-term more powerful, but because they're unexpected, as you say, in today's culture, it can seem risky, but in the world I want to live in, it's a far better play. (laughs) Well, and it can seem risky, but once you actually open that up, it invites, I think, people to come with you down that road in a way that obviously it wouldn't if you didn't. Everyone's feeling it. They're just not saying it. So it's like the Lincoln Tunnel fight. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You can just put it on the table and then look at it instead of having to hide it away. So that's, I think what I would say is mostly it's a mediator and consistent surfacing of whatever you're afraid about with the mediator's help. I think every marriage should have a mediator. I really do. I just think we spend so little time on the most important. If you're interested in like a two family household and a sort of whatever it may be, whatever kind of marriage you're into. But if you're interested in a consistent relationship with someone else over time, having a third party to talk to, man, we should all have it. For sure. No, I I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Peter, any thoughts on everything that we're saying? I thought I suggested early on to you I should marry two wives. I, I don't know. I, it, it, obviously, it got shot down, but you're revisiting it, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, my husband's humor is going to get him into trouble at some point. <laughs> Hopefully not today. <laughs> I love it. Your question was, what advice would you give to two people going into a co-founder situation? And I think just going back to the simple things that I talked about earlier on, which is if you're going to partner up with someone who has heavily overlapping skills with you, Mm. then be aware that that is what you're going into and that there may be a higher propensity of feeling like each other is stealing shadow or stealing something from each other because you have similar traits. But there may be conversations that you can have that are so simplified because you think and feel the same way and have some of the same traits. Conversely, if you are going into partnership with someone who is radically different, but your skills are complementary to make a better whole, then that also has pitfalls. If the co-founders that you are speaking to and advising are coming from their own relationships, and I would encourage them to observe those first and say, think about what you're living in your daily life and think about how good you are at that and how successful and where you've made mistakes and where you don't want to make those same mistakes. And how many parallels there are to your personal life. Because I think the same thing applies to whether you've done thinking about your own relationship or not, and whether you've spent time thinking about it. And if you've been married for 20 years, generally, and are still, quote, unquote, happy in your marriage, then the chances are you have done a fair amount of thinking, because everyone knows that 20 years of marriage is no cakewalk. If you have a team of people who have similar skills, they're going to work more easily together. The innovation isn't going to be as high. But if you have a team that has different skill sets, it may not go so smoothly, but the innovation will be higher. So compare that back to the marriage. You might have a great marriage, but maybe you don't feel as challenged in some way, which maybe that's okay, (laughs) actually. We do challenge each other almost all the time. More innovation, maybe less smooth, but you've got the innovation. (laughs) I had dinner with the wife of a couple that we know the other day, and 
she was telling me about COVID and what her and her husband went through. And she said, yeah, there were times when I just sent my husband up to the house in the Hudson Valley because she goes, I don't need an executive assistant at home. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that's why they have such a good marriage. They have totally found their slides and both of them have enormous pride and enormously capable, yeah. but I don't need a co-CEO. I don't need an executive assistant. I got it. Thanks. That's right. I love it. This has been so much fun. I feel like we could talk longer, but we only have a few more minutes. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything else that we should cover or any other wisdom that you have to offer? I think that if I had a takeaway from our relationship is that we're always trying to turn toward each other. When you go to bed, do you turn away or do you turn toward? When you're having a fight, do you turn away or do you turn toward? And for me, it's a design principle. And it's really can be very, very hard. And it means that both of us have to give. We both think that we actually make way more compromises than the other. And that the other person is always wrong and just doesn't see it. And so we're always the one who has to admit that we're wrong. Why does it have to be me that admits I'm wrong? Can it be you that admits you're wrong? But the fact of the matter is that we keep in conversation. And we keep in dialogue and we keep turning towards learning and we keep turning towards discovery and towards understanding and holding tightly to this idea that the shared journey is where the richness lies. So it's not easy and it takes work and it takes third party advice giving and it takes lots of reading and synthesizing and sharing and risk taking. But if you consistently turn toward the other person, and lean into humility and forgiveness and all those things. It's been really fun, right, babe? Yeah, I think this linkage between the work that you do in your own marriage or your own relationships that are personal and the way you apply that to your work, I think they're both connected. Yeah. And the idea that there would be the old model of I shut the door and go home and I'm a different person at home than I am at work is dangerous. You should be the same person at both places. Yes, you need your separation from both. You do. Uh, and you, you need, need and you need to shut the you need to shut the door and say, "I've had enough of this. I think I'm going to work," or "I've had enough of this. I'm going home." But the person itself shouldn't change from one place to the other. The principles that guide you shouldn't. Yeah, and one other note because we've been sort of quick on it, which is about this idea that we go on walks together. It might be helpful to your listeners to know that we walk for about an hour, if not more, almost never less than an hour, every single day. Wow. That's awesome. Every single morning. So on the weekends, it might be an hour and a half, two hours on the weekdays. The shortest is 40 minutes when we go to the bagel store and back. That's only if Pete has a really early call, but that is a commitment that is pretty intense. If connection is time and shared experience and trust is time and shared experience, we are making the time every single day to have that shared experience. And it's interesting because in some ways, maybe we can justify that that's what we should be doing in a marriage. Although life takes us away or is constantly pulling at us not to make those commitments and spend that time. But if you think about work, you think about how can we make those commitments in a way that feels appropriate, first of all, in the workplace, but at the same time still has those same elements of commitment and time and getting to know each other in a way so that we can do great work together. And yet we spend a lot of time at work and not maybe a lot of time spending 
time on these kinds of principles. COVID has been really interesting for me because you would think that's what a weekly is, like a weekly with a direct report or a biweekly. On several of my weeklies, we now, since COVID, take as walking dates. So both me and my colleague, we walk and talk. We don't sit on Zoom. We're on the phone. We're just walking on the phone. And it's just the way I think actually walking with Pete is different than if we like sat across the table from each other. And there's also social science around this, around when you're moving, it has a different kind of physiological effect and it creates feelings of connection. And so those colleagues with whom I walk, as I'm literally thinking about them right now, Winnie, I'm deeply connected to them in a different way than the ones that I just Zoom with once a week. Thanks, Winnie. Yeah, this was so good. I'm so glad that you guys spent time with me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much.